Uh, it's good to be here, and uh, again, I hope that everybody's having a good time as well. It's my privilege to, uh, as, as one Chicagoan, to introduce another. Uh, and, you know, most of us, uh, when we study the war, we think that uh, it perhaps ended uh, with either Lee's surrender or Johnson's surrender or whatever. And we're going to be reminded here that the tragedy continued. Uh, things are a continuum. They don't kind of come to an end at one particular point. Um, and Gene Seliker is going to talk to us about uh, the Sultana disaster. Uh, Gene, as I said, is a collector, a uh, Chicagoan, and he has been collecting uh, information and research and memorabilia and, and uh, whatever he can get his, uh, his little hands on on the Sultana disaster for since uh, 1978, it says here. I believe that's before most of us were born, but uh, or at least we'd like to think that. Everybody except Charlie. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, Gene uh, is a graduate of Northeastern Illinois University, uh, where he still works, and uh, he has written a book on the Sultana, which is available outside, and I'm sure he would not be at all upset if you went and picked one up, and I expect he'd be happy to autograph it for you. But anyway, without further ado, I would like to introduce uh, Gene Salker to talk to us on the Sultana disaster. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to break the mold and I'm going to use some slides here because that's usually the way I do this. And uh, um, I guess the first thing, this is all new, this, uh, this contraption here, so we'll see how this goes. Okay, you can, you can turn it on. Okay. All right, first off, um, I guess the main uh, character to, uh, to introduce you to in this talk would be the Sultana herself. Uh, to a lot of you, this may be a, a new new picture, seeing it for the first time. This is actually a, a photograph that was found just before my book came out, luckily for me, because it is published for the first time in my book. Um, it was a photograph of about nine different photographs of the St. Louis waterfront, and it had a picture of the Sultana in there, among other boats. And uh, the the uh, museum that had this thought this was one of the previous Sultanas, because the, the, the Sultana that I'm talking about was actually the fourth and the last one to use the name Sultana. Uh, there had been three other ones, and they, they thought that this was one of those earlier ones. However, uh, by naming some or uh, dating some of the other boats that were along with this one, and also some of the structure as far as the tall, the super tall smokestacks, uh, the deck, the way the deck is configured, uh, we were able to find out that no, this is our Sultana, you know, the Sultana that I've been so interested in all these years. And uh, so, as I said, it was the first time published in, in uh, the book that I um, that I wrote. Uh, the Sultana was built in January of 1863 in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, it was completed in uh, February and slid down into the Ohio River. And for about the first six months of its life, it acted. Uh, it, it ran between Cincinnati and was supposed to go up to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, except the smokestacks were built so tall that it couldn't get underneath the railroad bridge at Wheeling, West Virginia. So that's where it had to stop, offload its supplies, uh, take on whatever supplies was there, and bring it back down to Cincinnati. So this is the way it ran for about six months. Uh, the Sultana was 260 feet long, a little bit you know, shorter than a football field, and 42 feet wide. So it would have fit inside of a modern-day football field. Um, it had four uh, powered, powerful boilers on it. And uh, centered in, uh, let's see, there's a laser pen here. I don't know how to work these now. Centered in about this area here is where the uh, the boilers would have been underneath the, the chimneys or the smokestacks there. Um, 
the Sultana was built for the cotton uh, packet trade, even though it was built in, during, during the middle of the war. They knew that, you know, eventually the Mississippi was going to open up again, and uh, they could use, they could get the, the cotton from the south. Uh, so it was built with very, very wide decks. And in fact, on this drawing here, which hopefully I, I passed out some some uh, sheets for everybody to look at. Hopefully everybody has them. If they don't have them, sort of look around because I just put them on spots where where hopefully everybody was sitting. Um, but the configuration on the deck of the Sultana was built so that it could be used for this cotton trade. The upper decks were very, very uh, wide and spacious. And in fact, in front of the smokestacks here, this enclosed area here, this was left awful, awful wide, even on the top, on top of the hurricane deck, so that they could stack cotton. They would put cotton anywhere and everywhere on a, on a boat as it went up river. Um, also, the smokestacks were made exceedingly long so that sparks would not fly out of the smokestacks and ignite the cotton. Uh, they figured with the higher smokestacks, the sparks, the sparks would die out before they were actually blown out. Um, so that was some of the reasons why the Sultana was built the way it was. Later on, as the war progressed, Union officers looked at this and said, boy, this is a great configuration for carrying troops. And the Sultana was, in fact, used as a troop transport prior to the April 27, or April 1865 uh, demise of it. Uh, it, had, it had carried a number of troops, and as I said, they could lounge around on the decks out here or on the upper deck on the hurricane deck. Um, the Sultana was built and registered to carry legally 376 people. That's passengers, crew, uh, paying passengers in this, this second deck area. Uh, sometimes it's, its real name is the boiler deck, but the boilers were located down here. Uh, this was called, sometimes called the second deck or sometimes called the cabin deck. And this is where your, uh, your first class passengers would have been. Your lower class passengers or deck passengers would have paid and, and lounged around out here. And um, then you have your crew members living up in this Texas area. And of course, the pilot uh, running, controlling the boat, steering it, is up here in the pilot house. So legally, 376 passengers and crew could be carried by the Sultana. Now, on April 15th of 1865, the Sultana was at uh, Cairo, Illinois, when it suddenly re received word that Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated. Uh, Captain J. Cass Mason, who was in charge of the boat, and you'll see his, uh, his pictures on that handout that I got. He's up in the upper corner. Uh, he's a very young-looking uh, person. He was only 26 years old at the time of his death in 1865. Uh, he was what today we would call a, a, a lead foot or a hot foot. He, he tended to drive his boat the way the kids nowadays drive their cars. Um, he, just, he loved the race. The Sultana had been in three or four races. It had never won any. Um, although it did, uh, on, on the trip just prior to its last trip, it had come up river from New Orleans and it had set a, a speed record. Because of that, they gave it a little elk's head, uh, elk's horns, which, which they put up uh, on top of the staging uh, between the two sm uh, smokestacks. And that would show business people that here's a very, very fast boat and I, you know, I want to book my, uh, my freight on this. Or the passengers would say, gee, I want this fast boat. So they would see these elk horns. I'll show you in a second. You'll, you'll, you can actually see that in, the, in one of the photographs taken of the Sultana. Uh, now Mason was at uh, Cairo, Illinois when he received word that, that uh, Lincoln had been assassinated. And he was in, in big financial trouble. He had uh, originally owned uh, 3 8 percentage of his boat. He had started to go a little bit broke. Uh, there's no real, uh, I could never find any influences to really what he was spending his money on, but he definitely was not spending it on the Sultana. The Sultana had, had troubles with its boilers, and it had to have its boilers repaired a few times uh, because of the silty water on the Mississippi. 
and they used that in the, in the boilers, it tended to clog the boilers a lot. Um, so the boilers were giving him trouble. He was not spending the money on his boat. What he was spending on, I don't know. Eventually he sold off one-eighth of that. He sold off another eighth. So he was a sole owner of one-eighth of the Sultana. And eventually, actually he sold one-eighth to his, his first clerk. And eventually, out of the one-eighth that he still owned, he sold out one-sixteenth. So as the Sultana traveled up and down the river, the clerk actually owned one-eighth, and Mason only owned one-sixteenth. He was a minority shareholder in the boat. Now, hearing about Lincoln's assassination, he knew that uh, if the Sultana could go down river and tell everybody, all these river towns, about Lincoln's death because the telegraphs had been torn out with the war, uh, the Sultana would, would earn itself a place in history as a messenger of death. So that's exactly what uh, Mason did. He gathered on a few of these uh, Cairo newspapers and started downriver. At the same time, moving towards Vicksburg from Andersonville Prison, this is a, a shot you should all be familiar with of Andersonville Prison, uh, the prisoners were being released as the war was basically over. Uh, that what they were doing is they were bringing the prisoners from Andersonville Prison and from Cahaba Prison, which is about 30 miles south of Selma, Alabama, on the, on the Alabama River. Um, these are two uh, Union or Confederate prison camps holding Union prisoners. They were brought over to uh, Vicksburg, Mississippi, about four miles outside of the city. There was an exchange camp called Camp Fisk set up, and the soldiers were kept there. They were to be exchanged. However, there was the Confederacy wasn't totally dead, so they were. Uh, they brought the soldiers there, the prisoners there, they kept them there under Confederate control, but they were now being supplied and clothed by the Union soldiers, so that at least they were getting some food. Uh, but they were still under Confederate control, and they would not release them until Union soldiers were brought down and, and they were exchanged. So there was all this trouble brewing in Vicksburg over the soldiers, but the soldiers were starting to collect there. Among the soldiers, typical of the soldiers that were collected, was this fellow here. Uh, he does have a head, but... Uh, uh, this is Eponidas McIntosh of the uh, 14th Illinois Infantry, um, or let me see, yeah, 14th Illinois Infantry. He had been captured, he was a, a prisoner from uh, Andersonville, he had been captured in October of 1864, weighing 175 pounds. Seven months later when he was released and brought to uh, Vicksburg, he weighed 85 pounds. Uh, Miraculously, he would, he, he would be put on board the Sultana and he would survive. And he said that the reason he survived is because of this loss of weight. Uh, he felt that had he been any heavier with the small pieces of wood that he was able to gather and keep himself afloat in the Mississippi, he wouldn't have been able to survive had he weighed 175 pounds. So he, he actually said his starvation in prison actually saved his life. One of the few people to ever admit something like that. Now the Sultana reached Vicksburg on uh, April 17th. And this is where Mason came off the boat and started passing around these newspapers. And at the same time, he was met by uh, Colonel Reuben Hatch. And he's in your, your hand out here on the, the bottom, uh, I guess as you look at it, on the bottom left-hand corner. Uh, Colonel Hatch was a very unsavory character. He had been a quartermaster at uh, Cairo at the beginning of the war uh, under Grant. And he had taken, an, and he thought the war was for his personal profit. He sold saddles, he sold bridle, government saddles, government bridles, anything that was government he was selling to the people and pocketing the money. He got caught at one point because he, he bought lumber from Chicago for $2 a, a foot and sold it to the government for $5 a foot, pocketing the other $3. Uh, eventually, the Chicago Tribune got wind of this and, and uh, wanted an inquiry. Well, he quick threw his, his personal books into the Ohio River. The only thing is that they washed up on shore. 
And, and so those, those were brought forward. He was facing a court-martial. The only thing is his brother was Ozias M. Hatch, who was the Secretary of State for the state of Illinois, a good personal friend of Lincoln. And also uh, Ozias Hatch knew, knew Grant and such. What they were able to do was to convince Grant and Lincoln and everybody that Hatch was a real nice guy. Reuben Hatch was a nice guy, and he was never found guilty of, of anything, and, and the court-martial charges were dropped. Eventually, he winds up as the chief quartermaster in charge of Vicksburg. Uh, he met with Mason. Mason said, I know you've got a lot of these prisoners here. He's got a government contract. He had uh, The Sultana had entered into a government contract with a number of other boats. He said, i got a government contract to take the troops, and I want some. Hatch said, you know, he wanted as many as he could. Hatch said, well, I'll try to get you some. The only thing is, is Hatch really had no control over these soldiers. They were under the, they were under the direct command of Captain Williams, which is in the middle uh, bottom uh, picture. Uh, he was in, he was, General Dana had put him in charge of these prisoners, try to iron out this, this problem that was going on with the exchange. Williams was having trouble because of the, the bad telegraph uh, between uh, Vicksburg and Washington, D.C., so he eventually traveled upriver to Cairo so he could have direct telegraphic communication. In the meantime, Captain Speed stepped in. Speed was really in charge of the prisoners when word reached Vicksburg that uh, the Confederacy is falling apart. The Confederates said, don't worry about exchanging a man one for one. Put him on parole, send him back up north. Let's just get rid of him. So, that, so Speed was in command when this order came about. So Hatch really had no control over these over these men, but he led, led Mason to believe this. And he told Mason that he could get him as many men as he wanted if he could get a little bit of a kickback. And Mason, being in the poor financial straits that he was, was almost was more than glad to take as many men as he could and, and kick a little money back to Hatch, because uh, he, he was able to get $5 per enlisted man and $10 per officer to put him on board the Sultan and take him north. If he could get maybe 1,000 men, 1,500 men, he may, may get a good profit, 5,500, 7, and kick some back to Hatch. So he was still going to turn a pretty good profit. So as he left Vicksburg and traveled further downriver, uh, Mason was, was sitting pretty, thinking that he was going to get you know, a pretty good load when he came back upriver. Now on April 22nd, this, uh, the boat in the middle here, the Henry Ames, arrived at Vicksburg and took the first load of prisoners being sent up north. Uh, this was on April 22nd. It took 1,300 prisoners up to St. Louis, up to Benton Barracks, and they were mostly from Illinois, Wisconsin, uh, from Iowa. On the 23rd, the next day, the Olive Branch uh, arrived, a much larger uh, boat than the Henry Ames or the Sultana, but there was only about 700 troops that were ready to be put on board. What the, what the Union officers, what Speed was doing, is he was taking the old Confederate rolls, making sure that the men were there. He would call off a name, the person would step forward, they transferred to Union rolls. So it was a long process. He only had 700 people ready when the Olive Branch showed up. They put him on board and went, went upriver to Cairo. Or Cairo, I already pronounced it. Um, on the 21st of, of, uh, of April, the Sultana left New Orleans. It was only carrying 75 passengers and 85 crewmen. This is well below the 376 people that it could legally carry. Um, as it was going upriver, uh, there was, it was going against a spring flood current. The, the, the river was overflowing its banks. Um, seven miles, or seven hours south of Vicksburg, the Sultana suddenly sprang a leak in the uh, left outside boiler. Um, the 
one of the what happened was the plates on the on the boilers were together. It had sprung a, a slight leak. They had bulged out and sprung a slight slight leak. Water was dripping down. The engineer noticed it. Uh, decreased the pressure in the boilers and limped the Sultana into Vicksburg. When it got there, he got a, uh, a boiler mechanic to come down to the boat. He looked at it. He said, you know, in order to do a correct job, what I should do is cut out those pieces of a ruptured boiler and well, or, or uh, rivet in a new plate. Uh, the, the engineer said, knew that Captain Mason wanted the boat to be ready to go in an instant because he wanted to put these men on board and said, no, we can't let you do that. Uh, he says, is there any other way you can do it? The, the boiler mechanic at first protested and over his better judgment said, well, what I can do is pound the bulge back and rivet a plate over the top of it using a thinner material, metal. Um, the engineer said, okay, do this. While that was going on, Mason went into town to see Colonel Hatch. Uh, when he got to Hatch, he found out that there was only about 500 men ready to be put on the Sultana. And Mason protested. He said, it's not going to be worth my, my weight to sit here for a day, a day and a half while these men are being loaded and waste my time for only 500 men. And he, he demanded, he said, I got this government contract, you need to put more men on. Eventually what happened was uh, Captain Williams came back from Vicksburg and uh, Mason complained to him and, and Williams uh, together got together with Speed and they said, try to stay with me on this, they said, why don't we just put all the men on the Sultana, send them upriver, we'll worry about the rolls later on, we can transfer them to the rolls uh, afterwards. So that was what eventually they decided to do. They'll just put every last person in, in Camp Fisk on the Sultana and send them up north. They asked Speed how many men he estimated were out there. He said about 1,400. So uh, as on uh, April 23rd, when they were sitting there making this deal, the evening of April 23rd, they thought, okay, we only got 1,400 men. We'll put them all on the Sultana and ship them up north. Uh, as the men were, were preparing to leave Camp Fisk to be brought to the Sultana, uh, and, and none of these Union officers knew that the boilers were being worked on. The Lady Gay, a much larger, uh, more spacious uh, steamboat, arrived at the, at the Vicksburg Wharf. And they also wanted some of these soldiers, if they were going to get $5 per man, uh, they also wanted a cut in this. However, when they checked with the officers, the officers said, no, don't worry about it. The Sultana can carry them all. Go, go, by, you know, go about your business. The Lady Gay went up river not carrying one paroled prisoner, although it had been, been there and was eagerly waiting to get them. On April 24th, the morning of April 24th, uh, the prisoners started to arrive at the boat. And uh, they were, they, they came in. What happened was William stayed at the boat here. He, he stood at the, at the gangplank and counted the men. Captain Speed went out to this Camp Fisk and was sending the men in by train. Uh, the problem occurred is that uh, somebody reported to Williams that there was an act of bribery taking place. There was no names mentioned, but he thought that it was Speed out at Camp Fisk. So he went to see... Uh, General Dana in charge and make a, a formal complaint. At the same time, Speed was in camp and he decided to take lunch. Well, Williams was away from the boat. Speed was having lunch when a second train pulled into Camp Fisk and said, you know, I can't wait too long. I have uh, some trouble with my boiler. Quickly load the men up. They put 400 men on this, on this train and sent it into town. Neither Speed nor Williams knew that this train was there and that it had arrived. So they both miscounted by 400 people the amount of people going on board the Sultana. Um, at the oops. at the Vicksburg, this is a picture of the Vicksburg Wharf. This is not the Sultana, but just a, a picture to give you uh, uh, an idea. Uh, the Sultana was really starting to get crowded. Uh, the decks were starting to get so the people were, were the men were getting on the decks. The decks were starting to sag. That the crew had to take and put uh, wooden bracings underneath the decks to keep them from caving in. Uh, people, men were just going everywhere. They were on the top of the boat. They were uh, on the on the the decks, the forward decks. 
the tops, the hurricane deck, even on top of the, the Texas cabin. Uh, wherever they could find a spot, the men were starting to, to crowd in. At the same time, another steamboat, the Pauline Carroll, pulled in. And they said, you know, it looks like the Sultana's awful crowded. Uh, can we take some men? By this time, Williams had come back to the boat. He was still convinced that somebody was taking a bribe, and he was convinced that it was that the Sultana was not involved. And he said he's going to put every last man aboard the Sultana no matter what. He said, I don't care about these other ones. But Pauline Carroll waited and waited and waited, and again, eventually left Vicksburg without one single uh, person on board, although they could look over and see how crowded the decks of the Sultana were actually getting. Major Fiddler, um, with the 6th Kentucky Cavalry, was in charge of the uh, paroled prisoners. As he brought them down to the, with the third and last train, as he brought them down to the, to the wharf, he looked at the Sultana and was amazed how crowded this was. And he actually protest, protested to Mason. Mason said, man, I got nothing to do with it. It's being loaded by the government. It's out of my hands. Uh, Mason really could have made a more formal protest, but he didn't. Why should he? He was getting money out of this. Um, when when uh, Fiddler took and protested to the government, to Williams, Williams told him, look it, everybody's going on the Sultana, and that's just the way it is. Uh, Fiddler would eventually lose his life on the Sultana. Um, there were some paying civilian passengers. One lady uh, uh, went up to him and said her mother was drowning. When he jumped in, chivalrous, you know, jumped in to save her, he eventually perished also. So Fiddler uh, lost his life in the disaster. Um, now, in addition to the men being put on the, the Sultana, at the same time the Sultana took on 300,000 pounds of sugar that were being put in the hold. Uh, in addition to the sugar, there was over 100 horses and mules, uh, government horses and mules that were being put onto the Sultana. Also, there was 100 civilian passengers. These are people that were paying to go on this boat. There was 85 crew members. There was 22 guards from the 58th Ohio Infantry that were being put on board to make sure that the prisoners didn't get out of, or the exchange prisoners didn't get out of hand, or parole prisoners. So for a total of about two, uh, and 2,300 released Union prisoners, that's what it turned out to be, 2,300, not the 1,400 that, that uh, Speed and Williams had thought. So in, in, in all, there was about 2,500 people on board the Sultana, plus cargo. Uh, this is on a boat legally registered to carry 376 people. Oh, and I should also point out there was one other uh, person being, or one other thing being carried. That's the pet alligator. The, uh, the crew of the Sultana had a mascot, a pet alligator that they had on board in a nice, sturdy wooden crate. Uh, and uh, as the soldiers came on board, for a lot of them, this is the closest they'd ever been to an alligator. And they were poking sticks at it and watching it snap its mouth and hiss. And they decided, uh, the crew said, this is awful cruel. So they took the crate and the alligator and pulled it underneath the closet and closed the door. And that's, that's where he stayed. Um, now, as the Sultana started upriver on April 24th at 9 o'clock it left, uh, it, as I said, it, it went into this flooded area. It's uh, similar to the floods that they had on the Ohio, and a few years ago they had it on the Mississippi. That's the way it looked back then in, in 1865. Uh, the levees and the banks had become so eroded and fallen apart prior, you know, because of the war and because nobody was taking care of them. The uh, Corps of Engineers was out building bridges and doing other things. Um, so the Mississippi at some points was actually three miles wide. Uh, around the Memphis area, it, it was so deep that literally trees the only part above the water was the, the very top of the tree. It looked like a bush, but as the soldiers later found out, when they grabbed onto these trees and they went to put their feet down, there was, there was nothing down there. It was just the trunks of the trees. That's how deep the water was. Um, as, the water, as the Sultana went up river, the soldiers 
would go from one side of the boat to the other as they were passing boats or as they were passing towns. And this was causing the boat to careen a little bit. Mason complained about this and tried to get the officers on board to try and stop these guys from doing this because that could cause a problem. With the four boilers, they were connected. They were all connected. And as long as they were going upriver, the water level was the same. But if they took and tilted to one side, all the water from up here would flow down into this lower boiler. And this boiler up here, now it doesn't have water in it. And as the fire underneath is heating this up, the, the metal turns red hot. If they come back to an even uh, setting, the water comes back and this hits this red hot uh, metal and creates more steam pressure than the boilers are allowed for. So they had to be careful that you know they didn't explode the boat because of that. On April 26, the Sultana landed at uh, Helena, Arkansas. Um, a photographer saw an amazing sight and took this picture, which up till, as I said, up to a few years ago, was the only known photograph of the Sultana. And you can see this is crowded over with all these troops on top of the Texas deck, on top of the paddle wheels, in the front, the hurricane. It's just, it's just totally crowded in the back back here. Um, there is a horse's head sticking over on a clearer picture. You can see a horse's head. And you can also see some laundry hanging on a line about here. Um, you can also see one question that I, that I brought out in my book was people wondered, what was it like to be on the boat for two days? Um, there's no bathroom facilities. Bathroom facilities on a steamboat are back here. Uh, for these guys on the deck, there's no way they could stand in line. So that's why they broke these holes in the paddle wheels, and that's also probably what this is here, is just human excrement as the guys are going over, over the side. Um, also, the food and the water was kept on the front of the first deck, so many of these soldiers didn't get a, a fair meal while they were on board the Sultana. So it must have been horrendous living conditions, but they had been so used to being crowded in prison that they thought, well, we can put up with it for one or two more days until we get back home. We're just glad to be going home. Uh, at 7 o'clock p.m. on, uh, this is very, very hard to see, I apologize for this slide. At uh, 7 o'clock p.m. on April 26th, the Sultana landed at Memphis. This is where they took out the 300,000 pounds of sugar out of the hold. What they were doing is they were taking the ballast out of the hold. They never replaced it. All these men were on top of the boat, and you took the, the weight out of the bottom. Now it really became top-heavy. Um, also, at uh, many of the men, they were told not to leave the boat because it was only going to be there for about four or five hours, but many of the men jumped ship and went into town. Uh, what, one of the things that they visited was an was uh, uh, area of 14 side-by-side -side saloons called the Whiskey Chute. And for some of the men, this is the first time they'd had whiskey in two or three years, and they got rip-roaring drunk. A lot of the guards were sent into the city to bring them back. In fact, one uh, gentleman, they said it was a seven-foot Tennessean, I don't know if it was actually that tall, uh, was brought back rip-roaring drunk at the point of the bayonet. Um, they, they, uh, at midnight, the Sultana rang its bell, left the dock, and went across the river to Hopefield, Arkansas. Uh, and Forgetting I got this thing, sorry. At Hopefield, Arkansas, this is where they loaded up with coal. While they were sitting there loading up with coal, some of the men that had missed the Sultana gathered at the wharf and they, they were stuck. As it turns out, they were the lucky ones. Uh, but what happened was one of the fellows, George Downing from the 9th Indiana Cavalry, had sent home uh, for some money. So he paid a man $2 to roll him over to the Sultana. As he was being brought on board, he said, uh, and I quote, if I had not sent home for that money, I would have been lost. Two hours later, he was killed in the explosion of the Sultana. Um, the Sultana left Hopefield and started up river, oh boy, uh, started up river, Memphis is down here, started up river, it got, it, it left Hopefield at one o'clock, it got to about here, about two o'clock in the morning, 
and it was following, there's like a dotted line, I don't know if you can all can see that, but that's the courses that the steamboats would take. The, the Sultana was transferring from one side of the river to the other, so it was being hit in the side by this flood current, and that possibly careened the boat. Uh, uh, an inspector of boilers eventually said he thought that that's what, what caused the explosion. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, with the men sound asleep, most of the men sound asleep, the boilers uh, suddenly exploded on the Sultana. Uh, this sent human bodies flying in all different directions. Uh, the boilers, uh, one boiler exploded. Seconds later, two other boilers exploded. We know that because eventually one intact boiler was excavated from the, the wreck of the Sultana. Um, when, it, when it exploded, the Sultana literally was was crippled, it was mortally wounded, it was now a floating hulk. Uh, the center blew out the boilers. I found out from my research that the boilers didn't blow up. They blew sort of backwards at a 45 degree angle. They took out three quarters of the Texas cabin and totally blew off the pilot house. With the pilot house gone, now you had no way to control this wreck. In a normal steamboat disaster, the pilot would, if the boat caught fire or you had some trouble, the pilot would try to ram the boat into shore and everybody could just run onto the bank. With the pilot house gone, this was, in, and it was right in the middle of the river when this happens, of course. Now there's nobody to control the boat. Uh, this one smokestack fell backwards into the opening, uh, where the, where the, uh, the, the, the explosion had occurred. The, the other one fell forward onto the very, very crowded hurricane deck and crushed that deck down into the top of the second deck, pinning people between the wreckage. Uh, and initially, a, uh, this, this person, William Madden, from the 8th, uh, 8th, Ohio, uh, 8th Ohio Cavalry, had been sleeping on that forward part of the hurricane deck when he suddenly heard this explosion. And he, he awoke. It was still dark. He reached out, and he burnt his hands and his arms to a crisp. What had happened is a part of the boiler had actually been blown up from the lower deck, gone into the air, and landed over the top of him. He was surrounded by this section of boiler. He started screaming and yelling. Somebody heard him and pulled away the debris in the front and, and uh, extricated him. And he had... Uh, burnt his shoulder and his hands and his arms to a crisp. He eventually, you know, he got into the water and he did survive. Uh, another soldier, uh, Otto Barden from the 64th Ohio Infantry, uh, he, he, he witnessed the, the explosion and he was on the, uh, rear deck of the stern of the first, the main deck. And he said, and I quote, first it was a terrible explosion, then hot steam, smoke, pieces of brickbacks, and chunks of coal came thick and fast. Just the, the steamboats were built of very, very flimsy wood. The partition between the boiler room and the stern cargo room just disintegrated, and everybody sleeping around it was just blown to pieces. Um, Commodore Smith, uh, let's see, oops, I backed it up. I didn't know it. Commodore Smith of the uh, 18th Michigan Infantry uh, also had been sleeping in that stern area, and he said the men were thrown around like rag dolls. And in fact, he said he was, quote, nearly buried with dead and wounded comrades, legs, arms, heads, and all parts of human bodies. Uh, the, a slight little fire started around the boilers, and had the men acted quick enough, they probably could have put that out. But understandably, 2 o'clock in the morning, this thing goes off, explosion occurs, um, you're going to panic. And that's what, what happened. The men panicked rather than kept their heads. Also, the fire buckets, which are kept on these boats, um, they, had, they had disappeared because the men needed them to get water. So they stole the fire buckets and they tied ropes on them and they were dropping them into the river and pulling water up to the upper decks. So when this happened and, and the crew went to look for where the fire buckets were, they, they weren't there. Um, so the men actually helped add to their own demise by, by, by doing that. Um, 
This fellow, Chester Berry, with the 20th uh, Michigan Infantry, he was on the main deck. He was on the bow. And he recalled that the, uh, quote, the flames swept fiercely up and back through the light wood of the upper decks. Uh, in a matter of minutes, the entire middle of the Sultana was just blazing flames because, as I said, this was a light, uh, um, light wood that they, that they used to, to uh, build the boats. Uh, on the bow itself, a, a panic suddenly occurred, and the men started pushing each other to get out of the way. They were pushing the man in front of them, and he pushed the man in front of him, and they were just tumbling into the water on top of each other. Uh, even if you were the best swimmer, you probably had a hard time surviving because the water was so cold to begin with. And secondly, you had been in, in prison camp. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you think you have some strength, but you're, after a while your strength is sapped. If you didn't have something to, to hang on to, you were probably a goner. Uh, plus, other people were suddenly grabbing onto you and taking you down uh, in droves. And the panic got so bad on the main deck that one soldier recalled seeing one person that had been blown off the main deck land on the bow and get killed, saw him laying there, and as the people were running over his body, he, he said this, he quote, all of his clothing was, was torn off by men running over his body. So this, this one guy was just getting stampeded, and all his clothing was ripped off. Now, the, uh, in a short time, as I said, the, the center of the boat just became a mass of flames, and the wind was coming out of the north, so it was blowing the flames towards the stern. Suddenly, the men on the bow decided, hey, this ain't such a bad spot to be. Let's stop pushing and everything like that. We can wait for a little bit. The people on the back end of the boat, however, they were the ones that suddenly were hit by, by the flames. And they just came over the sides like, like cattle going over a cliff, like buffalo going over a cliff. And again, they were just jumping on top of each other and, uh, you know, uh, uh, going down in, in droves in the river. Um, these, this picture here, this is actually, you gotta ignore him. He's actually a Confederate cousin. But, uh, these, these three here were brothers, um, on, all on board the Sultana with the 3rd Tennessee Cavalry. This is, uh, John here. It's, uh, Henry and Robert, or Henry and Robert. Robert wrote that uh, the men were leaping off into the water on top of each other and hundreds were drowning together. Uh, of, these, of these men here, uh, uh, Henry uh, passed away. He, he died on the Sultana. They didn't find him. Um, another person, these two here, this is Pleasant Keeble from the 3rd Tennessee Cavalry and his brother John. They were on separate parts of the top deck, the hurricane deck. When the, when the explosion occurred and everybody started running for the water as the fire was breaking out, uh, Pleasant Keeble got swept along with the crowd. He was literally being pushed down the stairs. He wanted to find out where his brother was. He wedged himself up against a, ba uh, a banister, got on top of the banister, and literally crawled across the heads of the people to get back up onto the hurricane deck. When he got up there, he ran to where his brother had been, and he found nothing more than a gaping hole. His brother John had been killed and was never, ever seen again. Um, there's a photograph, or there's a drawing that I have here reminiscent of the people that most people forget in the Sultanas, there were the 100 civilians on board. Uh, the civilians suffered just as badly. Uh, this is a, a, a woodcut that I had found just to represent a woman being saved. And she represents Ann Annis, who had been on board the Sultana with her husband, Lieutenant Harvey Annis, uh, who, had, who had retired from the Army. He was on his way home with his seven-year-old daughter. When the explosion occurred, they tied life belts onto themselves. And at that time, they were nothing more than just a, like a belt. They tied them on, and they jumped overboard. Harvey had his daughter uh, Isabella, seven-year-old Isabella, on his back. 
uh, Anne's uh, life, life vest was loose, so she swam over to the rudder and held on to the rudder and tried to reposition it. And as she was hanging there, she saw her husband and her daughter get grabbed by a number of drowning men and, and go down in mass. So she actually saw her, her, uh, her family die before her eyes. Um, she then started panic, losing, you know, uh, understandably losing control. She started screaming and thrashing about. A soldier saw her, came over, grabbed her, put her on some uh, wreckage, and she, she did survive. I did not have a photograph of Ann Annis when my book came out. However, I have been recently given a photograph of her. So we now know what the, the heroine of the uh, Sultana disaster looked like. This is Ann Annis right here. She was about 42 years old at the time of the disaster. Um, now, with the, the, with the stern on fire, uh, for about 20 minutes, the, the flames were just sweeping back. Everybody was forced off the stern. And uh, um, the Sultana just floated down river, and the whole the whole superstructure was was basically burning uh, from behind where the boilers had been. As the Sultana was floating down river, similar to what you see right there, um, the Bostona, a side wheel steamboat, was coming down river. As it came down river, it saw this this you know burning uh, uh, floating wreck there with massive humanity in the river trying to save themselves. And the captain, John Watson, gave an order to throw everything off that would float. They threw deck chairs, they threw uh, the doors, shutters, anything and everything, the stage planking. They sent out their rowboats. They were throwing uh, ropes out to try and pull the people in. Uh, they eventually rescued between 100 and 150 people. Uh, then uh, John Watson made the, the decision, and it was, was the correct decision, to leave the scene of disaster and go downriver to Memphis to report it. He had, as I said, between 100 and 150 wounded people on board. He had the responsibility to take care of them and also to try and report the disaster. He had no idea that it, it would, uh, would be uh, reported before him. Um, so he made the terrible decision to leave all these other men drowning in the river and go downriver. Um, uh, in 1874, Congress passed a special act uh, paying John Watson $3,962 for the, the amount of money for the material that he had lost trying to save people from the Sultana. So he became the, the big, you know, sort of like the, the hero uh, of the Sultana disaster. After about 20 minutes, after about 30 minutes or so, one of the paddle wheel housings, the left paddle wheel housing, burned away and fell into the river. But it didn't fall all the way away. And what it acted now was like like a giant uh, outrigger canoe, like one of these Hawaiian canoes. The current hit this paddle wheel and suddenly spun the Sultana around. So all these men that had sought refuge on the bow, thinking they were safe, were now being spun around. And the wind is still coming out of the north, so it's blowing the flames towards these men on the bow. Eventually, the right paddle wheel burns off. The two of them burn away, and now you have the Sultana reversed, going downriver, bow first, and the flames are suddenly coming towards them. So what happened was you had a second panic on the bow. Suddenly people, and these were mostly the people that could not swim that had thought, well, you know, we're safe if we just stay here. They were suddenly shoved off. Also by this time, most of the, the debris, the floating debris, had been taken by the other people. So these guys had nothing to grab onto. And again, a big mass drowning occurred at the, at the, uh, at the bow. Um, John Simpson here was only 16 years old at the time of the Sultana disaster, another person from the 3rd Tennessee Cavalry. Uh, he had been blown off the boat and had been hit in the head by a fragment of the, the wreck, and he had a fractured skull. Uh, but he didn't worry about that as he floated down river. What he was worried about was that alligator. <laughs> a lot of men were, and a lot of men had written about it, but they really didn't have to worry about the alligator because this gentleman here, uh, William Luganbeal with the 135th Ohio Infantry, had remembered that alligator also. But more importantly, he remembered the sturdy crate that he was in. 
He broke open the door of the closet. He killed the alligator with a bayonet, dumped him on the deck, dragged that crate over to the side, threw it in and jumped in and used it as his own little rowboat to row down to Memphis. So by using his ingenuity, he, he was able to survive the Sultana disaster. Uh, Memphis was apprised of the, of the disaster. And again, Memphis is down here. Uh, Memphis was apprised of the disaster by Wesley Lee up in 102nd Ohio. He was the first person to float all the way seven miles downriver and be rescued uh, uh, at the wharf. Uh, the minute that the, the people there found out about the disaster, they started ringing the, the bells of, of the steamboat, the dock steamboats, to notify the public. Uh, they tried to build up pressure in their boilers, so it would take a while before the steamboats could go out. But they immediately started sending out all of their all of their their uh, rowboats and their smaller boats. Um, this was probably about now. This is probably around four or five o'clock in the morning. It's very very dark. It's like you know darkest before the dawn, and there's a slight fog setting over the river. So as these people are floating by, they can actually see the lights of Memphis, and they can hear these boats clicking and clanking with the oars going going around rescuing people but a lot of them actually floated down past the city. Um, helping in the rescue of the Sultana were, now uh, this is uh, the, what Ted had been mentioning, the uh, gunboat, uh, the ironclad Essex, and then the gunboat Tyler. So th this, is, this is great, this is all like tying in. Uh, they, had, they had been in the battle with the Arkansas, and I didn't even know about that, but, uh, but they were at Memphis at the time of the, of the disaster, and again, as they built up some steam in their boilers, and they sent out their, their longboats uh, and their crew to try and rescue as many people as they could. And they did a, they did a very good part in, in, uh, in helping save the people. Uh, Downriver further opposite Memphis, there's a little bit better picture. Here's Memphis. Down here is Fort Pickering guarding the southern approach to the river. As, as a boat would come up this way, they could fire on them with their cannon. Well, this was uh, garrisoned by the, uh, the 3rd United States Colored Artillery. And they had orders to fire on any craft, any watercraft out there that did not heed the call to come into the bank uh, when it was challenged. Now you had these men floating down past the river, and you had these rescue rowboats floating around, going back and forth, trying to get the men. Well, the the uh, the black guards called to these men to come to shore. When they didn't, they started firing at them. So after all going through all this hell, now they're even getting fired at. Finally, one boat went ashore and told these guys, "Look, you know, we've got a disaster here." The uh, the garrison then turned out in mass. They lit fires to warm the people. They set up coffee. The med medical doctor come out uh, and put as many as he could into the hospital. So they really did lend a hand once they were apprised of the disaster. At uh, Mound City, Arkansas, which is across, it's it's up a little upriver from where Memphis would be. The Sultana floated down, and this would have all been covered with floodwaters at the time. The Sultana hit uh, was hit a. Uh, um, um, some, some submerged trees and it was tied off and all that was left of it by this time was the whole superstructure had burned away so the flames had burned down and 37 men who had been hanging from chains and such below the bow climbed up back up on top of the bow. They tied this, this Sultana off. The residents of Mound City, Arkansas, which was maybe a gathering of seven or eight houses, were sitting here and they could see this and they could see the people floating down river and they, uh, they had no boats, however, because the Navy at, uh, at the Memphis uh, was afraid that guerrillas were going to use boats to come and, and blow up these ironclads and other things, cause all kinds of trouble. So they had gone a couple days before and smashed the bottoms out of all the private uh, vessels owned by people along the river. But the citizens of Mound City, they put together a raft of three logs and floated, started floating back and forth, taking the people from the Sultana, these 30, uh, 37 people, and putting them into the trees. Uh, it's just like a Hollywood movie. They got the last person off when the Sultana did like a shutter and then sank. 
Uh, the only thing left above the water was the jack staff with the United States flag. Like I said, it's almost like a Hollywood movie. Um, in the morning, uh, as the steamboats built up their steam and left uh, Memphis to go to the, to the Sultana, they saw literally hundreds of people floating along the river or held onto trees or on top of barns and, and uh, uh, horse corrals that are not horse corrals, but horse stables. Just the roofs were above the water. People were sitting on top of them. So they started picking these people off. Um, as the sun came up, the soldiers looked around and they saw how ridiculous they looked just sitting in the tops of these little, what looked like bushes on top of the water. And they started croaking like frogs and they started crowing like roosters and they were singing army songs. So they were having a, a, a good time knowing that steamboats are now coming to their rescue. So it's, it's, it's a, a, you know, a, a positive to know that the American soldier can find humor in, in any situation. Um, the victims of the Sultana were brought down to Memphis and they were brought in, and uh, the city had turned out in mass, even though it was a, you know, technically, I guess, a Confederate city. They turned out in mass to help out the victims. They were brought, put on carts and taken to six different hospitals. Uh, one of the people that was rescued, uh, was that seven foot Tennessean that had been so drunk he'd been helped on board with a, with a bayonet. He was seen hanging to a tree when a steamboat came up to pick him up. He asked, how far is it to Memphis? When they said it was only a mile downriver, he said, quote, go to hell with your boat. If you couldn't come to help before now, you'd better have stayed away. And he jumped into the river and started floating downriver by himself. Uh, he eventually reached Memphis, where he was spotted by a number of people on the shore, and, and the government the authorities tried to put him in back of one of these wagons, and he would have nothing to do with it. So the guards finally said, okay, we'll march you to a hospital. We're going to get you to a hospital no matter what. As they walked him up the street, he walked past a number of merchants, haberdasheries and clothing stores, and he was stealing the hats and the, and the coats and the pants. And all the merchants were chasing after him, saying, I want my coat, give me my pants. He got all the way to the hospital. When he got there, he threw the stuff up in the air and said, here, here's your clothing. When they all stooped down to get it, he was going around and kicking them in the behind. So this is, he was a total carrier. He, whiskey had a bad effect on this fella, so, <laughs> to say the least. Um, the, uh, the dead were taken and collected. Uh, uh, originally, they were put into coffins, but Memphis soon ran out of coffins, and then the dead were just laid along the, uh, the, the banks, the shores. Um, People were soon going up and down. Uh, survivors were going up and down trying to find uh, friends and relatives. Uh, Samuel Pickens, again from the 3rd Tennessee Cavalry, he looked for his brother and could not find his body among the, the dead. He did not see him among the living in the hospitals, did not see him among the dead, and he had a right home to his parents. He said, Brother William is among the lost. I have not heard of him since the explosion took place, and I have no hope of ever hearing of him anymore. Um, and, and, and he was he was dead. Um, the Sultana. Uh, I think. Uh, 521 people were were rescued from the Sultana and put into hospitals. 241 were taken to a soldier's home, which is similar to like a USO. Um, so that was a total of 762. However, the newspapers admitted that there were 786 people rescued. So some were probably taken to private homes or just didn't need you know medical attention. However, out of that 782, 200 eventually died in the Memphis hospital. So you really only had about 586 people that survived the Sultana disaster. And uh, the 18th Michigan, and I'll tell you some figures in a second, but I want to touch on this. The 18th Michigan and the 102nd Ohio and the 3rd Tennessee Cavalry had all been captured by Forrest in October of 1864. So a lot of the men on board the Sultana had been, had been captured by, by Brian's uh, uh, favorite guys there. 
So uh, the 18th Michigan Infantry had 129 people on board, and they lost 71 for a death rate of 55%. The 9th Indiana Cavalry had uh, 112 people on board and lost 59 for a 53%. The 3rd Tennessee Cavalry had 398 people on board and lost 213, so for 54%. However, the 3rd Tennessee Cavalry people... Uh, they say that there's only about 80 survivors. They claim that there was about 78% people that died. And the 102nd Ohio uh, Infantry, from about the, about the middle area of, of Ohio, um, out of 108 people on board, lost 71 for a 66% casualty rate. The government said that there was only 1,238 people that died by the disaster. The actual count is probably closer to about 1,750 to 1,800. Um, of, a, of the crew of 85, only 26 survived. Of the 100 civilians, between 23 and 25 survived. Um, so that they were hit even harder uh, percentage-wise than, the, uh, than the, the soldiers. The, uh, the newspapers, uh, which is a thing I found out doing research from a book, everybody thought that, well, you know, the Sultana was widely overlooked. It really wasn't. Chicago did a real good job of covering the disaster and including, and in fact, most of the Midwestern towns did a real good job. The River newspapers, St. Louis, Cincinnati, uh, Memphis, they covered it, you know, in all its detail. Uh, and because the soldiers on board came from the states of Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Tennessee, and Kentucky, with a splattering of men from West Virginia and a couple other states, um, the Midwest area really covered it because this, this was their hometown boys. However, out in the, in the eastern coast, uh, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, this was the area where you, know, you had the big papers and such, and when they first heard about it, you know, they did this you know, appalling you know, mar marine disaster, thousands lost. Eventually, though, however, a uh, congressman went to look into the disaster and found out that there was nobody on board uh, from uh, east of the, uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains, the Appalachians, and they sort of forgot about it then. You know, this wasn't, it wasn't New York troops, it wasn't Massachusetts troops, so they said, oh, the heck with it. At the same time, you have to remember, uh, Lincoln had just been assassinated. His funeral train was traveling across the north. Uh, they were looking for, or they had just found John Wilkes Booth, and uh, Joe Johnson's army had just surrendered. So this was capturing the headlines instead of the Sultana. This woodcut here, this famous woodcut, came from the Harper's Weekly magazine, uh, and, and it shows the Sultana graphically. It's, it's not correct because, as I said, the smokestacks fell and the pilot house blew away, but it was a very dramatic thing. The only thing is, is this came out one week. The story of it had come out the week before. So if you hadn't read that story, when you see this, you go, gee, what's that all about? So it was, it was just weird the way they put those, the stories together. Um, the Sultana, that's a, that's a bad picture. Here, however, here you can see there's that, there's the elk's antlers, uh, that, that, that Mason had won for being a speedy boat. Um, the government, I guess you could almost say it had like a cover-up on this. They had three inquiries to try to find out who was responsible for this. Um, eventually what happened was the officer in overall charge of uh, the Vicksburg area was General Dana. He took and he resigned on May 27th, exactly one month after the Sultana went down. Once he, once he was a civilian, the government authorities couldn't go after him. Uh, two months after that, on July 12th, 1865, uh, General Smith, he took and he resigned. Both of these officers had had the, the uh, power and the responsibility to go down and look at the Sultana. In fact, there was even uh, one of the quartermasters working under Hatch that had complained repeatedly that the Sultana was overloaded. Won't one of you officers come down and see this and transfer the men to another boat? 
Uh, none of them did. Dana, Dana just washed his hands of it and didn't want anything to do with it. Smith said that he would. He started down. He decided, nah, I don't want to. He turned around. Both of them left the Army. As I said, once becoming civilians, um, the government couldn't touch them. In those days, you know, the subpoenas and everything could be ignored. Um, Hatch, believe it or not, was honorably discharged from the Army on July 28th. Uh, however, in his last crowning glory, as he was discharged and leaving the Army, he was supposed to take and escort some funds from Vicksburg up to St. Louis. On the way up, the funds suddenly disappeared. The captain of the steamboat said, we're not going another mile until those funds you know, show up. He, he stopped the boat. There was this big search. Eventually, half the funds showed up. The, the, the captain said, okay, they were government funds. The captain said, okay, that's enough to start with. Let's go up river. They went up river. There was an inquiry into this. It, the, the money never showed up, as it was probably deep in Hatch's pocket. But what happened was he was held responsible for this because he did not have a bonded courier with him. And it was the only time that Hatch actually got caught doing something and was actually punished. He had to repay that money. Um, Williams, in, this, in the, the center down here in the, in the bottom, uh, he was a, a, a regular Army officer. He had graduated West Point and everything. So the government really wasn't going to go after him as a scapegoat because, you know, it's, it's one of our own guys. That left Speed. The only thing was Speed was a fellow that was out at Camp Fist sending the men in and didn't even get to the Sultana until it was about seven-eighths loaded. Uh, but he was the one that they eventually pinpointed uh, as having the responsibility of putting these men on board. Uh, he was found guilty. Uh, however, the judge advocate general looked at these at the court uh, transcripts and said, after reading through these, you guys are wrong. You got the wrong guy. Speed didn't have anything to do with it. He was out at Camp Fisk. Uh, they, he, he honestly said that you should go after Hatch, but Hatch, as I said, he had quit. He was a civilian. His brother was Ozias M. Hatch, still had a lot of political power. The government finally said, forget it. We're not going to blame anybody or hold anybody responsible. It was also determined that Mason, who lost his life in the disaster, he was responsible because he should have, should have stopped the overloading and should have known about his boilers and informed the government about his boilers. Um, he was, uh, uh, he died, so he was a good scapegoat. Also, it was determined that what had caused the explosion was probably low water pressure or low water in the boilers and excessive pressure and because of the ill repair of the, of the boilers themselves. Um, this is a, uh, in, in April of 1912, and the Sultana survivors got together at their annual reunions on April 27th, or as close to that date as possible. Natural discussion came up about the loss of the Titanic, which had happened on April 14th-15th of 1912. Um, there was some similarities. Both boats had carried about 2,000 200 people. This Titanic is 2,223. The Sultana, 2,300. Um, the Titanic had about 706 people lived. The Sultana had about 786 people lived. Uh, the percentage of loss for the Titanic was about 68%. The Sultana, 65%. However, an additional 200 people from the Sultana had died in, in the Memphis hospitals, leaving only those 586 survivors. So really, the, the Sultana had lost much more than the Titanic. And if you look at this, this sketch here that I have, you can see that both carried about the same amount of men. And look at the size of the Sultana as compared to the size of the Titanic. If you don't think those people were crowded on the, on the Sultana, uh, I got some swampland in Arizona to, to sell you. So, uh, the Sultana could be summed up yeah, by the words of, of fellow named William A. McTeer, who was the uh, adjutant for 3rd Tennessee Cavalry. And he wrote, and then this will finish, conclude my talk. He wrote, and I quote, many were killed while others were drowned. There is no, uh, there in the bosom of the Mississippi, they found their last resting place. 
No stone or monument marks the spot where their ashes lie. There is no tablet marked with their name or even unknown for them. There is not even a hillock to which friends and survivors can go and drop a tear of remembrance of these noble defenders of the Union. Flowers are strewn over the graves in the cemeteries of our dead, but there are no flowers for the dead of the people who went down in the Sultana, but let us remember them. So that concludes my talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Gene, sure, for a sure. wonderful presentation, Thank and I'm you. sure we've all learned something today. Uh, and uh, we're really not supposed to take questions because we're late, but maybe we'll get to take one that I saw a hand up there. No, not really. The survivors themselves tried to get a, a, mon a monument put up, uh, you know, years and years, and they finally gave up. Uh, the 3rd Tennessee Cavalry, which had so many men on board, paid for their own monument, which is outside of Knoxville. Uh, Jerry Potter, who found the remains of the Sultana, which is now about 12 feet under a, an Arkansas bean field because the river has shifted course. And just to touch on that real quick, there is no plans to excavate it because there's nothing really there. It's all, it's just charred wood. Um, he finally put up a state monument uh, at the Memphis waterfront where the Sultana had docked last. And that was about five years ago. About two years ago, somebody stole that plaque. So, yeah. And, uh, well, thank you. And just in case you're wondering, I, I do think that... Uh, Larry asked me to introduce Gene because if you put the two of us together, you probably get two guys of about the right size. Normal height. Uh, anyway, uh, Gene, uh, we have a plaque for you from the Civil War Roundtable, oh, certificate of appreciation uh, to you for your April 19, 1997 presentation, and we certainly did appreciate it, and uh, we hope that you'll answer any questions anybody has uh, Thank afterwards. You. Thank yeah, you. I'll just be in the corner if anybody wants it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. Thank you.